It is so good to be back with you. I was here November 5th of 2018, and um, some of you were here, some of you were not here, but um, I will tell you, I appreciate the relationship that my wife Karen and I have with your leadership, Pastor Philip and Holly, over the years, and uh, we want to congratulate Pastor Julian and his lovely wife, Christina. We, we live life on levels, and we experience it in stages. It's true of our own personal development. It is true of corporations and organizations, churches, and relationships. So as they move from one level to this new level of ministry, it means that they will now be exposed to a new level of knowledge, experience, understanding, authority, and responsibility, which will require a deepening of their character and a deepening of their relationship as husband and wife and as a leadership team. So they really, really need your prayers. Do not take it for granted that leaders occupy this special, untouchable place. No. Whatever you go through, it's multiplied when it comes to us because of the responsibility on our shoulders. So I want to congratulate them and encourage you to be strong, be very courageous. You know those words because obviously God has called you for such a time and season as this. God bless you. Amen. Come on, let's give them a round of applause and appreciation. I affirm them because the reality is whatever you appreciate in life increases in value. Whatever you depreciate in life decreases in value. So in relationships, it's important to appreciate each other so that the value to each other in that relationship is ever increasing and never diminishing. It's true also in the relationship between the congregation and its leadership. So they need and appreciate your prayers. I bring you greetings from our congregation, Christian Cultural Center in New York. This is our 41st year of ministry and existence. Uh, my wife and I were the founders of that particular ministry, and it's been an interesting four decades, not only of the growth of the ministry, but our own personal growth and development. I bring you greetings from my lovely wife, Karen. This year we celebrated 47 years of marriage. And it's important that we have longevity as a model to tell us that there is indeed hope for the institution and that relationships can last long in the context of marriage and can model the unity in diversity that is modeled in the Trinity, the model of love, unconditional love, 
redemptive love, sacrificial love, because all of that is what should be experienced and modeled in the marriage relationship. And it's important to understand that marriage is not something you just decide to do because she looks good or he looks good. Marriage is a divine vocation. It is a calling to a place of service, to a place of longevity, to a place of demonstration of patience and learning to grow and develop personally in the context of what can be a relationship that experiences the inevitable friction of human relationships like no other relationships. That is true of marriage. And often, the greatest and strongest relationships are forged in the crucible of crisis. And there's no other context that allows for that crucible experience than in marriage. Consider that you have to wake up every day looking at that same face <laughs> and never growing weary of that face. Amen? And that takes work. That's a reality. It takes an investment of time and effort, especially with the fact that when you get married, that honeymoon night, that day of the wedding ceremony, you married the ideal. The next morning, you wake up with the reality. And depending upon how much preparation went into leading up to that ceremony, that will determine the, the degree of disappointment. Because the disappointment is never based upon what you find, it's always based upon what you expected to find. And you want to make sure that you do everything to decrease that gap between the ideal and the reality. That's why premarital counseling is so important. It's not something that you just do because it's nice. It's something that you do as an investment into the longevity of that relationship. This is good preaching. This is real good preaching. If I say so myself. I bring you greetings from our seven sons and our 24 grandchildren. And I am, and people say, well, why do you have seven boys? Because we wanted a girl. <laughs> Explanation's quite simple. And I'm so happy and blessed to have one of my sons with me who is actually transitioning into my role as I transition into new roles in ministry and leadership for, and work for the kingdom of God. PJ, Pastor, we call him PJ affectionately, Pastor Jamal Bernard, good to have you. <laughs> Bring a word of greeting. And we also have three generations represented here. My grandson, come on up, Alfonso Bernard. Come on up. He's behind the camera and video. Yeah, so you want to start with you or him? No, he can yeah, start. Good, let him start off. Yeah. I didn't know he was going to do this. I didn't know he was going to do this. <laughs> but how you guys doing, you guys? Are you guys good? 
All right. So something that I've really just learned from actually both of them that being a Christian is fun, actually really is fun, like learning the word of God and just, you know, not everybody's perfect. But at the same time, when you just live in this life of Christianity, it really is fun. It's a process. It's a growing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I love absolutely every part of this. So I appreciate you guys so, so much. (laughs) Do you take credit card? (laughs) Just kidding. PJ. (laughs) I love putting them on the spot. I mean, first of all, I'm a pastor, so you can't just give me the microphone and say a couple of things. you know? Already? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things I think that has helped me uh, through my life in, with Christianity is to understand that uh, I'm unapologetic about this. You know, this is who I am. Uh, if I offend you, that's not my intentions. But ultimately, when you live a certain lifestyle, especially with Christianity, you're going to offend somebody. Let it go. Embrace your Christianity. And there's no dimmer switch. There's no on and off switch. If you're a Christian, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 365 days a year, unless it's Jeep year. And when you're six foot four and 300 pounds, nobody can challenge that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I have the intellect to go behind it, you know. To, to, uh, hey, right, right on. That's it. That's it. My, my father has taught me to always be prepared to give an answer of why I believe what I believe, and not just give an answer, but an answer that will uh, challenge the belief systems of other individuals. Amen. Amen. All right. I better take the mic back because yes. you'll start preaching. Yes. Okay. Yes, I will. Thank you. <laughs> My family. Hello. Love you. Love you. Good. Good. Praise the Lord. Must have done something right. One thing right, I think. I think so. There are four things that God wants from a man. Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. There are four things that a woman wants from a man. Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. There are four things that men struggle with in life. Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. I talk about it in my book, Four Things Women Want from a Man. The audacity for me to tell women what they want. I didn't. I listened to them. And the number one complaint that women have about men is that men don't listen. So when I finished the manuscript, gave it to my wife, gave her some opportunity, chance to read it. I was so pleased because when she finished, she looked up at me and she said, you've been listening. And that was a very enriching moment because I learned that listening is an art and the art of communication is in your ability not to speak, but in your ability to listen. The better you are as a listener, the more effective you'll be as a communicator. And I wrote the book to give women a framework 
to make better choices when it comes to having a relationship with men. I wrote the book so that men would have a framework as well on what it means to be a man. My pastor and mentor for 18 years was Dr. Edmund Lewis Cole. And his message was that manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. So when a man images Christ, he actually liberates the woman to be the woman that God designed her to be. So if you really want to change the quality of life experience for women, you've got to begin with the man. So in our congregation, we hold men to a high standard of responsibility. Because when things went wrong in the garden, God didn't go looking for Eve. He went looking for Adam. And the biblical model presents for us a way of seeing life and making sense of life. Why I am a Christian, I was a black Muslim for five years, from 1970 to 1975. I'm a product of the 60s, a decade where there was every possible imaginable revolution taking place in American society, from music, spirituality, politics, economics, civil rights. There was a lot going on. And I, too, was wrestling through the identity crisis that is common to every human being. And in that process, I was looking for God. I somehow intuitively knew that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. So if I found one, the other two should be present. I needed, as a young man growing up in a single-parent home, my father abandoned my mother and I when we were, uh, when I was born, the day that I was born. I was looking for order, for strength. And I found that in a nation only in the context in which I was experiencing life in America, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, in Bushwick, Brooklyn. But I didn't find God. I found order, I found strength, I found identity, I found a cause, but I didn't find God. And if I had the chance, the time to tell you, I don't, but Jesus worked in an incredibly supernatural way throughout those five years to keep my attention looking. And then January 11, 1975, 8.30 p.m., Baptist Temple, downtown Brooklyn. A man named Nicky Cruz made an altar call after sharing his story. And at that moment, I knew I was at a crossroad of life. And I heard two things. Number one, I'm the God you're looking for, and I intuitively knew it was Jesus. But the second thing was equally important. I and my word are one. 
You see, that was important because the only images I had of Jesus were from movies and paintings. And he didn't look like me. Nor did he look like he could relate to me. So I and my word are one. Directed me to the scripture. And all of a sudden, the word became Jesus to me. And Jesus became the Word. It was not the institution of Christianity that saved me. It was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I continue to have an incredible relationship with that person while I try to figure out the institution. This was an important moment in my life because it gave me a new way of seeing the world. It began a whole new journey for me to answer the three big questions. Number one, what is the truth about God? Who is he? What is he? Is he a he? Is he a she? Is he a force? Is he a power? Is he some universal thought? What is the truth about God? Secondly, what is the truth about what it means to be human? What does that mean? Because we're still debating that today. What does it mean to be human? And the third big question, what does it mean to live in this world? And like many, when I came to Christianity, it was about heaven as a place that Jesus now becomes the doorway to. But as I continued to study and learn and grow, I realized that the kingdom of God was not a place. It wasn't that Jesus was trying to get a group to leave the planet and go to heaven. When I came across his prayer in John 17, where he said, Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but in the world, protect them from evil. For they are in the world, but not of the world. When I reflected on his prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Not take them to the kingdom somewhere, but thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I realized there was something else going on here when we talked and we talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The term at hand means within reach. It means now, here, present in your lifetime. That was his grand announcement. And what he was talking about was not religion. The kingdom for Jesus, and what it should be for us, is the government of God in the earth. Does that take away, Dr. Bernard, from the fact that when we go, when we as Christians die, we go to heaven? No, it doesn't take away from that, that it's still a place that we go to. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? 
But even that is a holding place until the ultimate that God has planned, and that is, in Revelation, we see the holy city coming down, not earth going up, but the holy city coming down from heaven to the earth, which was the original Edenic vision that God had in mind with Adam and Eve, that what he started, he would ultimately finish and complete at the end of human history, or at least history the way we know it. And you see, when you think of the kingdom of God as the government of God, you're also understanding it as the order of God. Because culture is man's attempt to order his society and determine the best way to live in it. And the reason why our nation is so divided is because we have different ideas on how society should be organized. We have different ideas on what the best ways are to live in this world. So Jesus' objective was to unite us under one idea, one world view, one way of thinking and understanding those big questions and answering those big questions. So in Matthew 6.33 where it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. How many are familiar with that text? The kingdom of God, all right, it wasn't talking about seeking how you can get to heaven by making sure that on a daily basis you don't get God upset. Woe to you if that's your Christian life. Seeking the kingdom of God is seeking God's government, God's order, God's way of doing and being and experiencing life and relating to life and to people. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second goes with that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which means that being human is deeply relational. I'm going to try that again. Being human is deeply relational. And if I were to ask you, if I were to take a survey today, what you are most challenged with in life, at the top of the list, it would be your relationships. Come on, isn't it true? Your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with significant others, your relationship with other people and family, and on and on and on, because that's where we're most challenged, and yet that's what it means deeply to be human. We are social beings. God created us that way. So understanding his order is critical to successful relationships. That order is expressed 
in Scripture. And why is that important? Because we live in a world that has a different idea than the Christian idea. You see, our Christian worldview is a comprehensive way of seeing life that informs our words, our thoughts, our motives, our actions, and our attitudes. The way we see life, the way we live life. In fact, being a Christian and being a witness of Jesus is living the Christian difference. And how many know we should be different? You see, your significance is not in your sameness. Your significance is in your difference. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, be not conformed to this world. Don't get caught up in the sameness that the world is offering you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means explore your difference as a Christian. So your significance is in your difference, and if you don't believe that, ask Rudolph. Who's Rudolph? Who's Rudolph? The red-nosed reindeer who discovered that his value was not being like the other reindeer. His value was being different. And he took a lot of heat for being different. He was isolated, ostracized, marginalized, until conditions came that demanded his difference. Are you hearing me with me? And all of a sudden, he's put out in the front of the group to lead the way. So living the Christian difference is where your uniqueness lies. God called you out of darkness, brought you into this marvelous light of Jesus Christ. He called you out of the world to make you different and then send you back into that world to live out that difference. So when the world sees you and how you deal with life, they come to the conclusion there's something, come on, say it, there's something, I can't hear you, there's something Ah, it's not enough. There's something about you which opens the door for you to tell them to share Jesus, to share our way of life, our way of living, our way of thinking. And this is important. You see, throughout history, the church of Jesus has had different relationships with culture. There are times when our relationship with culture is based on shared values and common ground that we can work together. But then there are times when the prominent values of the culture are diametrically opposed to the values of the kingdom of God. 
Amen? And that's not the time that we attack the values of the culture. It's the time that we become the counterculture. In other words, we live our beliefs so well that we present an alternative that's attractive to what the culture is offering. And big questions come into play. Big questions. Can I take a sip? How are we doing on time? We're good? Are we, are we good in the balcony? <coughs> yeah, they're ready up there. So living the Christian difference is having a framework with which to respond to the differences in the culture. What's different from what we believe and how we believe. For instance, what's your name? Jenny. Hmm? Jenny. Pleasure to meet you, Jenny. Are men and women equal? I'm saying, say it again. Culturally not. Culturally not. But like human, as a human being, it, it should be equal. We should be equal. Yes. Men and women should be equal. I believe so. Which means experientially they're not. Um, I guess it depends on the culture. I don't know. Wow, that's interesting. So it depends on the cultural context, their equality. Because that means you would move to a culture where they are equal if you had a choice. Thank you for your participation. I need a husband and wife. I need a couple. I got a couple? I got a couple. Hmm. You have some fun. How are you? Your name? Betty? Yes. My pleasure. Freddy. Betty and Freddy. <laughs> we couldn't plan it like this. Married? How long? 14 years. Beautiful. How's he doing? He's doing great. He's a keeper. I like that. I like that. I heard it's cheaper. <laughs> Are men and women equal? In the context of marriage, let's, let's, let's contextualize it. Are men and women equal? We're created equal. But in so many facets of the marriage relationship, it's not. So you're created equal, but in so many facets of the marriage relationship, you're saying it's not equal. That's interesting. It's good because you're going to, I want to give you language before this is over, not just mess with your head. That's my job. <laughs> I love that line in the Adams family. Please don't torture yourself, Joe Gomez. That's my job. <laughs> Are men and women equal? I don't think so. I mean, e equal, God made us equal, but there are gifts and things that we each bring that the other one doesn't have, so we balance each other. So what if... 
my gift is worth more than your gift. I don't see it as worth more. I see them equally as valuable, but totally different. So we're married. You're bringing in 60,000. I bring in 120,000. We're not equal. table that aren't bringing money in might be even more valuable than that 120. Ooh. My love. Ooh. Right? Right? <laughs> Man's got to know his limitations. He's got to know. <laughs> I wish we had some time to have more fun, but biblically speaking, men and women were created equal in the sense that they equally reflect the image of God. He made male and female, right? He said, let us make man Adam, which means humanity, collective species, all right, let's make them in our image and in our likeness. So men and women are ontologically equal. Ontologically, a word that you use every day. Men and women are ontologically equal, which simply means they're equal in dignity, they're equal in value, they're equal in worth, they're equal in personhood. But they are functionally different. I'm giving you language. They're ontologically equal. They are both deserving, deserving of the same level of dignity, worth, value, and respect. But when it comes to function, they're different. We're made different. We think differently. Emotionally, psychologically, physically. So there is a difference. There is a distinction, right? But ontologically, in terms of being, we're equal in value. Therefore, women should be treated with the same level of respect, dignity, worth, and value that men are treated with. That's biblical. Am I in the book, Pastor? That's biblical. But functionally, we're different. If a woman has the capacity to function as a CEO of a major corporation, should she? Oh, that was weak. That's better. Absolutely. Without a doubt. If a woman has the capacity to function as a head of state, yes. should she? Yes. That's biblical. Interestingly enough. Now, something that our sister pointed out, the cultural context can disagree with that. But culture doesn't dictate our values. The Word of God does. And sometimes we can agree with culture, and sometimes we can't. 
Because what informs us, our worldview, our comprehensive way of seeing the world, what informs our words, thoughts, motives, actions, attitudes, and choices is the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. Amen? Amen. So there should be equal dignity, respect, value, and worth, and personhood when it comes to men and women. But we're functionally different. We're functionally different. In fact, differentiation is a pattern of creation. Intentionally establish to contrast two things. Whether it's light versus darkness, whether it's land versus ocean, whether, it, whether it's the gradation of life from plant life up to angelic existence. It's a pattern of differentiation. Now, of course, that's challenging to a world and a society and a culture that's experiencing identity crisis. But we have to have some standard, and being a Christian means that you subscribe, submit to that standard. Because when you declare Jesus as Lord of your life, you are making a political statement. You're surrendering yourself to the government of God. And you may not understand all about that government or why that government does what it does, or arrange things the way it does, but the bottom line is you're submitted to it. Amen? So in the government of God, there's distinction, there's differentiation, and men and women are different. So when God made Adam, Adam was single. He was a bachelor, folks. Okay. Did you read that? How many, how many got up to that, got that far in the Bible? Okay. Just checking. I want to make sure you're with me. There's a period of time before Eve was made, right? Adam had to name the animals, had the responsibility of dressing, keeping the garden, caretaker before there was a woman so God sees that there is no creature compatible for him and therefore God has to make one he has to create one right yes. and I love how he does it he puts Adam to sleep he did not want his opinion nope. <laughs> I'm just When Adam wakes up, he sees this new species. And what does he say? He wants to claim it already. This shall be called woman, because she came from me. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Isn't that like a man? So in that period of time that he was single, he developed a specific orientation personally, in terms of who he is and how he understood himself. 
So his relationship was first task-oriented, performance-driven in terms of what God gave him to do, right? It wasn't relational. It was task-driven. So before God gave Adam a wife, God gave Adam a job. Which has implications. No job? Ooh. Got some group here, Pastor. Why did God give Adam a wife? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will therefore make him a helpmeet, which is another astounding statement. Because God was ultimately saying that men need. <laughs> See, now you're finishing my statements. Men need help. And God determined that the best help that he could give him is a woman. Look, I didn't make it up. I found it there. All right? Don't project on me. The fact that she was created to help him does that make her subservient to him? No. I got some heavy no's right here. <laughs> and maybe the rest of you all are think, still processing and thinking this through. Does it make the woman subservient to the man? Because God designed her to help him. No. Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans. I will give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Is the Holy Spirit subservient to us? No. So just because you're assigned to help someone does not diminish your value and make you subservient to them. It means you are occupying a functional role that does not rob you of your dignity, your value, your worth, your personhood, because that's already ontologically established. Come on, man. I'm out of time. Men and women are different. Adam developed within the context of autonomy. And autonomy means you, you're used to doing it yourself. You're used to being on your own. And you judge your worth, unfortunately, by your performance. Men tend to be very conscious, very performance-oriented. Amen. So, husband and wife are driving on their way to some destination that's going to take a few hours. And the wife notices that they've passed this particular spot several times. <laughs> and she's kind of trying to hint to her husband, 
shouldn't we pull over and find a gas station and ask directions? And of course, the man, because he's performance-driven, he's thinking, I can't do that because that means you can't trust me with your life. I got this. And finally, after the fifth run past that same spot, he says, I'm going to pull over and ask someone. And she says, oh, that's a good idea. But it wouldn't work unless it was his idea. Interesting, the dynamic. And maybe when I come back next time, we can explore that dynamic in a deeper way. But understand, God did not make a mistake when he designed you. And you cannot say that God made me for a purpose. God gave me gifts. God gave me a particular personality. And then decide that when it comes to other things, God made a mistake. You've got to be consistent with him in terms of what you hold him responsible for. Because the moment you say he made a mistake, he's no longer God. He loses his perfection because of your opinion. That's based upon very little knowledge and experience. Living the Christian difference is looking through that lens and making sense of the world around us. Living the Christian difference is having a set of values and living them out even when the world doesn't agree with them. My son Jamal talked about being unapologetically Christian. I am unapologetically Christian. I make no apologies for what I believe, what I stand for, where I walk, and how I live, as long as it's consistent with the kingdom of God.